Anyway, we're starting in chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. So the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of memory, Genesis 18 and verse 1, where he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing by. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. So right away, Abraham is seeing these three men and he sees right away, these are no ordinary strangers passing by. He bows to them. So there's already a recognition that there's something different here and something significant is about to happen. That's what I feel is very plain right here. In verse 3, and he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get something, uh, let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do, we'll do as you say. So in verse six, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah, his wife, and quick, he said, like, quick, as I say, Rachel, quick, there's these three guys outside and there's something going on here, go make a pizza. And she makes really great pizza. And she would too, because she makes really great pizza. So take uh, three sayers of the finest King Arthur's flour there and knead it and make some pizza. No, he's make some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and got toppings for the pizza. No, gave it to, uh, gave it to one of the servants that hurried and prepared. He then brought some curds and milk in the calf that, he had be, that had been prepared and set them before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. So where is your wife Sarah, they asked. Now, these men, one of which you're going to find out is actually the Lord. And, uh, but they're asking these questions now. They already know because two of them are angels. One of them is the Lord. And so they don't know where Sarah is. But this is the point I want to make because we've a very small sidebar here. Because we've had discussions in this class, can one change God's mind? And we've talked about that. When, and, we, and, and what's usually used as an example is, well, you know, God said to Moses, you know, when all the people in Israel, if you're familiar with the story, we haven't gotten there yet in, in our class, but when Israel's rebelling and, and God's finally had it, and he says, I'm going to destroy all of them. And Moses, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, Moses did change, quote unquote, change his mind as far as what scripture says. But is that really true? Does God really not know what's going on? Would God ever leave for a moment his plans in the hand of any man or woman? No. So if, if scripture is written in, in the way that it does seem that way, and we know it's not in reality, there's a purpose behind it. And here's the same kind of juncture. We're at this juncture here. Where is your wife, Sarah? Why would they ask him that? They knew where she was. And they knew because he went and said to Sarah, go, you know, go bake some bread. Go get these things and do it quickly. So they saw him run to the tent. They may not have seen Sarah, but they know she's in there. The point is this. He's being asked a question so that he can respond. Whenever you're asked a question, it's why? To get the answer from your point of view. I really fully believe it's for two things. It's to engage Abraham into thinking of a certain, in a certain way, in a certain context. Because now he's got to think about his wife and where she is and why they're asking it and give them the answer. And this will start a dialogue. In our own lives, if you're going somewhere or you're doing something and someone asks you a question, try to understand why the question's being asked. If you don't know me and you walk up to me, well, I came from New York, right? So a lot of people walk up to you in New York. You ever been to New York? They walk up to you, they start handing you things, they put things out in front of you. 
they'll ask you, or they'll try to engage you and say, hey, by the way, come here, come here, I got a question for you. Or, or if you go to the mall these days, they'll basically accost you by walking over and say, hey, I got a question for you. How do you like the color of your hair these days? It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you're not careful, and what they want to do is engage you in a conversation to start making you engage them, and all of a sudden now they've hooked you into at least talking with them. That's the point. And that's the point of Scripture, when any time a question is asked of the average human being by an angel or by Jesus Christ himself, the answer is already known. So try to look at Scripture in that way. Remember, I said this a while ago, and it's important as, uh, now more than ever, everything has context, and you have to understand the context or pursue the context if you don't. Always read Scripture knowing that there's a reason for every word. And we're going to be talking more about that today because we're going to move past this and talk about, well, we're going to move past this and talk about some other important things, and context is very, very important. So I just want you to understand that. So where is Sarah, your wife, they asked him, and he says, there in the tent. He, he's there in the tent. You would me go in there probably, so there's the, he's there. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Oh, so here's the reason for the question, see? He shifted the conversation from whatever they were talking about to his wife. Why? Because I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Interesting. Very telling words here. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she, as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Get the point here. Remember the son Ishmael? Remember how that happened? Because God had made a promise to both of them, Sarah and Abraham, he didn't fulfill it right away. So they got a little impatient. And it was Sarah who got really impatient and said, look, go take my hand, uh, my maidservant, right, Hagar. And he listened. Now she's laughing again because that didn't work out too well. Remember she, if you know the scripture, she got so annoyed with Hagar that she sent them out. She put them out. And God said to her, don't worry, I will protect your son and I will make of him. By the way, there were 12 tribes of, of, uh, that come out of Ishmael too. But there were problems because Ishmael was born in the first place. And we won't get into all of that again. But here's the point. She's now laughing again. This woman has a lot of doubt. But she is still used by God in a most profound way. And Abraham had doubt too. And then the Lord in verse 13 says to Abraham, so, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Interesting. Asking Abraham the question, why did your wife laugh? He's probably saying to himself, you know why she's laughed? Because she doesn't believe anything. <laughs> when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what am I about what I am about to do? Now, Abraham's walking with them. And the Lord says to the other two, you know, shall I hide from him? It's like if you're walking with him, with them, and one says, Shall I hide? You're probably gonna say, No, 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 don't hide it from me. If he really wanted to hide it, he wouldn't have said to them in his presence, Should I hide this? Get the picture. What this is, and I'm not going to go through the, the whole scripture here because we did talk about this, and you know the story of Lot anyway, and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. But here, Abraham is being engaged because what happens here is that the Lord does tell him, uh, well, let's, let's go on. Actually, we will. 
Then the Lord said, shall I hide? Okay, verse 18, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on the earth will be blessed through him for I have chosen him. I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. So he's showing a little bit of a condition here. Then the Lord said, now here's the point. All of a sudden, now the scene shifts, the conversation shifts. And now he's saying, remember, they're walking towards Sodom and Gomorrah, very, very hedonistic and very, very sinful cities. Um, and the men turned away. To, uh, the, the outcry of Sodom, or the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now again, do you think that the Lord here doesn't know already what's going on already? He's going to have to go see. He already knows. Anyway, so now they're going towards Sodom. And the rest of the scripture here up until uh, the end of chapter 18 is this. Abraham is feeling compassion for those. Now remember, the three of them plus Abraham are walking towards Sodom. There is something being prepared here. He, he says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy this city. And Abraham does what? He intercedes. What, Lord, if there's a few people, if there's this many people, will you destroy it? And he says, no, I will not destroy it. Well, what if there is this many people? And then he starts, no, he starts thinking that he's really making himself a nuisance to the Lord. And he says, okay, just, just one more question. If there were 10, would you destroy the city? The only thing I want you to see out of this piece of scripture, again, is it here just as idle chit-chat? Is it here because it's inconsequential? Because you know the situation that the Lord sends angels to do this anyway, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the point. Just like it was with Jonah and, and Nineveh, God is openly testing compassion. And not only is he testing it, he's exercising it. He's exercising it. He's engaged Abraham on a number of fronts now. And one of them, just like we talked about with Moses and Jonah, had a different problem. He had the opposite problem. He wanted God to destroy Nineveh and God had to show him, no, I've got more patience and you are going to map into my plan for it. Apply all of this to you and me. And remember, when you see horrible things out in the streets or out in the world or you see horrible things in the news, Will you, if God asked you or God told you, I am going to destroy that house down there or I'm going to destroy that nation, and we know there are nations that will be destroyed very soon, do you have compassion for them? Or do you say, yeah, get them? Because human nature, and I have human nature, yeah, get them, they deserve it. But here is the point of all of this, and then we're going to move on. We have to make sure that like love, having compassion is a product of your will. Sometimes all you have is just to say, I am going to have compassion or I am going to love this person. That's what's being tested here. And that's what I think is just being called out here. Because we know what's going to happen. You all know the story. We don't even have to get into it. So anyway, as we discussed a while ago, and, you, and most of you already know in Scripture, the story of Lot and his wife and Sodom and Gomorrah. We know well. If you wanted to read it, it's in chapters 18 and 19. Now listen. Historically, one of the major symptoms of decay is homosexuality. What was one of the major features, if you will, of the Roman Empire, a very great Roman Empire, was homosexuality. And if you look at the history, it was pervasive. Same thing in, in, in ancient Greece. But you see, that's not just the sin. The problem in the society which brings the society down is the open 
acceptance, the public acceptance, the outcry to make it legal. And that's what really you see happening in this country. And this is nothing new. So when God talks about homosexuality, especially as it pertains to, and, and other sins, I mean, not just homosexuality, but other these blatant sins, and we talked about some of those, like genetic manipulation. And one of the things is using uh, embryonic stem cell research. All of these horrific sins against humans, against God's creation. It's a no-brainer. We know they're wrong. As a matter of fact, even non-Christians, because God has given them a moral law in their hearts, because he's built human beings with certain moral laws that they choose or not choose to follow. Everybody will tell you murder is wrong, even if they don't know God. Well, then why is it wrong? Well, I just feel it's wrong. They don't know why it's wrong, because if God didn't say murder was wrong, it wouldn't be wrong. Why is it okay to kill an animal to eat it, but not okay to kill a human being? Why? Just because God said so. This is the order of, of, the, of the universe he's created. Human beings have a special purpose. But they can abort babies and they can do other things and, and make reasons that are good enough for them. We have to have, understand that and we have to have compassion to hate the sin but not the sinners. Because God will take care of destroying the city, but he will spare those who turn. The story of Nineveh, right? Jonah was angry because Nineveh was, not, was actually given a reprieve and it was, took another hundred years before they were actually destroyed because from the king on down, they repented. And God said, okay. And Jonah didn't like that. He wanted them destroyed. God deals with Sodom and Gomorrah very decisively, as you know. You should know the story. And he will do it again. And he will do it again in the not-too-distant future. I've talked to you about Isaiah and the burden of Damascus. And there are other cities. And Damascus is the oldest city that's been populated, that has not changed. Babylon is still around as a city, although it's not prominent. It will be again. What does Scripture say about those two major cities? Damascus will be flattened, and in 24 hours, Damascus will be destroyed. So you keep your eye on the Middle East, because that's going to be the kickoff, I personally believe, of the tribulation. Is when Israel has to go in, and they will soon, not only to take care of Iran, but they're going to have to make sure that they, they knock out Syria first, because they cannot fight a war on two fronts when they're going over to Iran to, to bomb those reactors. It's going to happen soon, folks. You better keep your eye on the Middle East. We are this close. Whether you believe it or not, just keep your eye on the Middle East and watch. And watch God prove what he says he's going to do. Turn over to Genesis chapter 22. Here is the well-known story of the most important uh, journey of faith that one man ever took. The command from God now for Abraham to be exercised again, if you will, his faith, to sacrifice the son of promise. Now, you all know the story, but we're going to talk about it because it's, it's obviously you've, you understand what it means. But there are some parallels to ponder, and if you've been in this class before, you know that we, we map those parallels, because there are recurring themes in Scripture, and the reason why they're recurring is because God has to keep making the point that this is the major pieces of the salvation and the plan, and it shows you the control that God has over everything. Down, he knows not only the, the, the every hair on your head, and some of us are losing them, and he knows how many I've lost, go down the drain, but... By the way, hopefully I'll get them back, you know, when I get my renewed body. But that's beside the point. Some of us need more hair than others, but I ain't going to say, I ain't going to point anybody out. So don't worry about it. I can't look at anybody now because they think I'm looking at them. See? Don't worry, hair doesn't mean that much, trust me. <laughs> it's what's in here that counts. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's the circumcision of the heart. 
Well, you know, as you get older, some men, you know, you're supposed to have a, you know, <coughs> a large heart. Some men get an enlarged heart, and that causes problems, too, but as long as it's circumcised. Anyway, <laughs> oh, boy. Is Dr. Phil here? I need a heart surgeon. No, no, I'm already circumcised. You just have to fix the aorta. All right. So chapter 22. We must examine the prophetic parallels, and we will, of, uh, here as it pertains to God the Father, sacrificing His only Son, who is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and what all this has to say about them, because this, this is a foretype of the actual event that took place when Jesus was sacrificed, and, and the events up until that point. There are many parallels here. So let's begin in chapter 22 and verse 1. Sometime later, this is afterwards, after all of this with Sarah and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's, you know, saved out and all that stuff and, and Abraham and they move on. Sometime later, God tested him. Uh, God said to Abraham, Abraham, and he says, here I am. Okay, that's good. Now I know where you are, Abraham. Not that I didn't know before. God said, take your son, your only son. It's like rubbing salt into the wound. Yes, I know he's my only son. I know that. Take your son. But also, didn't he have another son named Ishmael? God here is making a point. Even though Ishmael is from Abraham's loin, he is not even considered a son in the context that we're now entering. Lineage and, and genealogy is very, very, very important to God. And that's why, and I've showed you this before, one of the things Satan seeks to do is to, one of the things he attacks, and he's doing it today, and you see it, is attacking genealogy, attack, attacking the DNA to pollute. Because once you pollute the DNA of, of a genealogy, if you're successful at it, you've ruined the whole line. Very important to understand that. So he's saying, your only son. Abraham's probably not even saying anything about Ishmael at this point. He's going, I know who you're talking about. Whom you love. Okay, I get it. And go to the region of Moriah. By the way, Moriah, Mount Moriah. Does anybody know what the modern day term is for Mount Moriah? Yeah, well, don't the rocks on it, but it's the Temple Mount. Absolutely. That's right. So isn't this kind of prophetic? Where is the center point of God's attention on this earth? I mean, he's, a, he's giving attention. That's right. Which is, contains the Temple Mount. So the pinnacle, you're absolutely right. Jerusalem is the, the, the pinpoint focus of God's eye, but most particularly that Temple Mount. And that's why that Temple Mount has to be under the control of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. If you know the book of Daniel, you'll understand some of that. If not, go to my website, because i got a complete study on the book of Daniel there. <laughs> and if you want to know what happens afterwards, go to my website. i got a complete book of Revelation study there. So in verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey, and he took with him two servants, uh, two of his servants and his son Isaac. So now it's just Abraham. Isaac and two servants. It's just four people. There was only four people. Now remember, Abraham was very rich. He had a lot of servants. He had a couple of thousand or maybe a thousand people somewhere upwards in that area of people attached to him. He had a lot of people. But it's only the four of them that make this trip. Now, when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Now, listen to this. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. On the third day, Jesus Christ looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he knew he was making it. And what did he say? If he went to that place, he would set up places for us as well. And remember what he told his disciples. 
you, I don't have to tell you how to get to where I am going. You know where I'm going. You see the parallels here? And this is only the beginning. We're going to talk more about the, the further four-type flavor of this whole incident here. So on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go with the boy over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. So now his son is carrying this stuff. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So they're both working together. They're both working together to create the environment for the sacrifice. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This gives you an indication of a couple of things here. First of all, they journeyed for three days, and Isaac was not told of what was going to happen. But he knew they were going to sacrifice an animal. It was something they had done. He knew about it. It wasn't anything strange. The other thing is, Isaac is now carrying some of the wood and some of the things up this hill. He's also asking a very poignant question of his father. How old do you think Isaac was? Was he a baby? He was like in his later teens, maybe early 20s. That's the range he was in. So I want you to think of this. Like my son Travis, he's in his teens. Or my other son Andrew, he's 21. Even my daughter Rochelle. I could just imagine, I, I, sorry, it just touches me. If I have to take my son and he doesn't know what I'm about to do because I'm fully believing I have to do this because God told me. That I have to take him and he doesn't know and he asked me, you know, where's the sacrifice? And what do I have to tell him? He says, Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. And the two of them went on together. So I think of that. And as I was studying this and I put it together, you don't realize, and I don't realize, I mean, I start to cry about it up here, what God had done when he actually followed through, when he said to himself, I will provide a sacrifice, and I must sacrifice my son. And he did. You understand, and I understand what that means, but do we really understand what that means to God? And why you are so important? Why his sacrificing, his son of promise for you and me, if you think that you are not important... You better take another look in that mirror and see that Jesus Christ is standing behind you. I don't want Christians ever to think that, and we've talked about this in this class so much, that, oh, I'm just so grateful, I'm saved, who am I? I'm nothing, I'm a worm, yeah. But you're the most important creation. The most important creation. Never forget it, because this world will have you doubt your efficacy. This world will have you doubt who you are in Christ. They will rail against you. And even Christians themselves will tell you you're no good if you don't live Christianity their way or any other way. Christians, we can be our own worst enemy. Do not let anybody, especially another brother or sister in Christ, make you feel worthless. You better understand how worthful you are because you know there are things coming which God may allow to affect you and me. And if we think that we're being punished if you think that we're going to be allowed to be pummeled because we are being punished or we're being trashed by God, and I know there are some Christians who believe that we're going to go through the tribulation because we need to be punished or we need some further seasoning, that's baloney. People can believe whatever they want. I'm going to tell you what I believe, and I prove it from Scripture. And if you can prove it from Scripture, come to me and we'll talk about it, but you better be armed with facts. Or you can assume whatever you like. And I'm not arguing with anybody. You can believe what you like. There are plenty of Christians who believe a lot of things. But you come from the standpoint of how important you are because this sacrifice was not pulled through. 
God provided a sacrifice, which you know was a ram in the thicket. We're going to talk about that. But when the time did come, when Jesus Christ took the place of Isaac, and God did not stop that knife from cutting his throat, it's because of his love for you and me. And you know what? If Isaac being sacrificed could accomplish the salvation of you and me, he would have let Isaac be sacrificed. But it couldn't happen that way. So we are now in Genesis 22, chapter 9. When they reached the place, God had... And by the way, one more point. Isaac had to be a willing participant because he understood now that there's something up with this. At tw in his late teens, you think Travis is not stronger than me? He is. I don't want to let him hear that too loud, but he is. And if I, remember, he wasn't bound yet. Now, there's going to be a point here. We're going to see that he's going to bind Isaac. Do you think that he would let me for a moment bind him if he knew I was going to slit his throat and kill him? That's true. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Hey, get back here. <laughs> yeah, but he's carrying wood. <laughs> and I, all I got is a knife. <laughs> so I made sure I burdened him down a little bit. That's actually right. He's, he's quick he's as a grease. That's right. He's, that's, yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. That's another parallel. That's excellent. Where Isaac was carrying the wood, Jesus Christ carried his own wood, too. That's a very good point. Excellent. I like that. That works. That really works well. There's a lot more parallels here. So he says in verse 10, Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. He says, Here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, Do not do anything to him. Now I know. Now I know that you fear God, that you respect God, because you have not held, withheld from me your son, your only son. Sometimes you and I are tested. We'll never be tested to that point because we know that God does not accept human sacrifices. But we do understand that God will test us because what we have is free will. And God, knowing the end from the beginning, knows who He's going to call and knows who will respond and know who will not respond. And that's all this bit about sovereign election and I'm not going to get into all of that. But I will tell you this. He will test you. And He, and he will make sure. He will make sure that you are tested and you'll keep on being tested until He will say that you've pulled through. And now He'll say, I know that you or me, Michael, I know, Michael, that you fear the Lord, that you respect Him. And I've been tested. I'm sure all of you have been tested. Yes? I'm just thinking, like, um, I've always thought this when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, that in his heart of hearts, I believe that even if he knew that Isaac was going to die, that God would raise him back again. Yes. For the, because of the promises, because he, he had so much faith in God. Right. So don't you think he had I, to feel it in his oh, heart? Oh, absolutely. He, oh, he knew yeah, it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's just like David with his son yeah. with Bathsheba. Yeah. When the son died, all of a sudden he came out of his depression. Yes. Why? Because he said, he will not come to me, but I know I will go to him. It's the same thing. I agree. And that was the faith that Abraham had, which he proved beforehand. Yeah. Well, I agree because. Yeah. Yeah. And because he also didn't fight his father when he was being bound up and tied up and put on that wood. So he knew this is something that God wanted and some good will come out of it. Yeah, I agree. So I like the insight from everybody here because that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. So now in verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. 
And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And on the mountain of the Lord it was provided. For real. Quite a long time after that. It came to fruition. And he says in verse 15, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, I am that I am is swearing this, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants. Now, you know, make your descendants numerous as stars. Now, I, want to, I just want to close with this point. Didn't God already say he was going to do this oh, a couple of chapters ago? Why do you think he's saying it again? I think he's saying it again because he is so happy and he is so honored and he knew it was going to happen this way but there's a joy in God's heart that it is done and I'm going to redeclare. You ever have something good happen that you've done or you've accomplished or that was accomplished for you and you restate, yeah, I knew I was going to do this. I knew it was going to work and man, it worked. I am so happy. I'm telling you, because it worked this way, I am moving on. I am going to make this because it's true, it happened. I believe that's God's emotion here. I believe that's what he's saying. Because he's reiterated this promise like three times before this. But here, it's in victory. And I believe the same thing was said when Jesus Christ went back up to heaven. When, God, when he sat on that cross, it is finished. And he, he did it. And he died. It was done. And God rejoiced. And I bet he said, this is my son. Anyway, important parallels to ponder. We've had a couple of them here. Isaac was taken to be sacrificed on the third day when he saw the place in the distance, just as Jesus himself, the son of promise, was being led to the sacrifice. And I'm just going to read this to you, so just listen, in Luke 24, in verse 45 through 49. Then, this is Jesus, he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. And in, in the book of John, chapter 14, starting in verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you with me because that you may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in, regarding of, in regard of sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father. I am going to the Father. Where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. This is what Jesus said when he saw the place in the distance. That's right. That's what it means. Isaac was about 33 years old at that time. Jesus was about 33 years old. Actually, he was later. That's, that's right. It was, it was in his late 20s, early 30s. Because I was looking into it, and it looks like it was about that time. I've read many references. It was about, he was about 33 years old. He might have been in his late 20s, but he was close to Jesus' age, so he was a little older than that. Abraham, the father of many nations, did not withhold his only son. God, the father of many nations, did not withhold his only son. He's the father of many nations. Look at all of us sitting here, all of us uh, half-breeds and whatever we are. Out of sheer joy, God reaffirmed his covenant with Abraham. We just saw that. Out of sheer joy, God made, uh, ratify the new covenant through completion of the sacrifice of his son. You see what I'm saying? God, through sheer joy, was so happy when Abraham decided he was going to do that. 
And the son didn't refuse. He had a sheer joy. His father, the father, God, sacrificed his son. And his son, although he said, if you would take this cup from me, but he did not refuse. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Many descendants will come. The descendants will take possession of everything. If you read Revelation chapters 19 through 22, you will find that. They will, he will vanquish all enemies, Revelations 19 through 22. And through his offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And you read of all of that from the book of Acts through the book of Jude. That's the New Testament. We only have a few minutes left. Let's go to chapter 24. In chapter 23, Sarah finally dies. She's 127 years old when she dies. In chapter 24, Abraham seeks now a suitable wife for his son Isaac because he is ready to be married. In Genesis chapter 24 and verse 1, Abraham was now old and well advanced in the years and the Lord had blessed him in every way, in every way. He said to the chief servant of his household, now listen to this, this servant, and he noticed his name's not here. His name is not here for a reason, but you will find his name out in a little while. His name is Elie, Elie, Eliezer, not Eliezer, Eliezer, E-L-I-E-Z-R. Now there's no name here, but he says, the servant of his household, the one in charge of all that he had. Now, so this is not just an average servant. This is the main man, okay? He's really more like a business partner with Abraham. And I want you to understand that because we're going to move on from that. And he says to him, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear to the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not, that you will not get a wife of my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country, to my country. He came from a pagan area, didn't he, Abraham? I want you to go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife. And the servant asks him in verse 5, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I take your son, Isaac, back to the country where you came from? And Abraham says, make sure that you do not take my son back there. Okay, now, you get the picture here. Skip to verse 12. Then he prayed, O Lord, this is the servant, God of my servant Abraham, give me success today. Remember, he's just sworn an oath to Abraham about all of this. Give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, Please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I will, I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen. Now, I want you to think about this statement for a second. Drink and I will water your camels too. What does that mean? It means that she's got the heart of a servant right off the bat. You see, she's not only going to give him water because he asked for it. But she's also going to offer to water his camels. She didn't have to do that. And most people may not. Now, he would have asked her, I'm sure. She, oh, yeah, sure. You know, like any of us nice people. Well, I'll give you, give you, you know. What did they say? What was I saying this morning, Rachel? Uh, beer for my horses and whiskey for my men. You know, you serve them up. <laughs> you serve, she'll water the camels. But this is a phrase. He's looking for a woman who's a servant. That's the key. Before, in verse 15, before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jaw on her shoulder. And she was the daughter of this or that, and the uh, son of Milka. I'm just trying to move on here because we only have a few times. And I, if I take time to try to pronounce these names, forget it. You'll never get through it. The girl was beautiful, very beautiful in verse 16. A virgin, no man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring and filled a jar. And in verse 18, she says, Drink, my lord, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And then she said in verse 19, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. Isn't that interesting? Skip to verse 26. 
Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, because this is the, this is the servant of Abraham. Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and uh, faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on a journey to the house of my master's relatives. Here's the point, and we're going to wrap up with this. Abraham's servant, which we now, we, I told you his name, but remember, you didn't hear his name yet. His name is Eliezer, was more of a business partner than a menial servant. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 2, is actually you find out his name. Now, how do we know it's the same person? When Abraham was told of the son of promise, he says to God, if you don't do this for me, I'm going to have to leave my possessions and my whole household to whom? If I have no son, who, who gets everything? And he names this man. He names that the, the next in line to get everything if he's got no son. So this man was not just a servant. He had many of them. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 2. That's when you find out who this is. He is led to Rebecca, who is beautiful, a virgin, and a humble servant. Sounds like somebody we need to be. Think about it as a church. Significant parallels. Eliezer, a type of the Holy Spirit, as he gathers a bride for the son of promise to the father, which is Abraham, or God the father. You see the parallels here? Isaac. The son of promise, a foretype of the son of Jesus Christ, the son of promise of the father. Rebecca, a foretype of the church, those called out from the land of the Gentiles. Remember he said, don't bring my son back there. You bring her to the promised land. Where are we headed? Out of, that's right, out of, out of, out of, the, out of the land of the Gentiles. And prepared for marriage and brought back to the promised land. The name Eliezer, you know what it means in Hebrew? Comforter. Who did Jesus Christ send? Just to wrap up with this, Isaac and Rebecca first met, and you can read this, and it's in my notes. They meet for the first time at this place called Beer Lahoy Roy. Lahai Lahai Roy. Beer Lahai Roy. That may mean nothing to you except this. Isaac and Rebecca met at Beer Lahai Roy. One of the translations for the word beer in Hebrew, and I have it in my notes in actual Hebrew which is a noun for fountain or spring or well. That's one of the noun meanings of the word beer that's translated in English. Fountain. Now get this. The whole phrase or name, beer lahoy roy, means the well of living water. That was the name of that well. They used to name their wells in those days, by the way. Type of Jesus meeting the church. Isaac and Rebecca meeting for the first time. Eliezer, the comforter, bringing them together. The church did not exist until Jesus died and went back and sent the Comforter to get Rebecca, the bride, and we're going to first meet over the Holy Spirit at the well of living water. And the next step for us is like Rebecca and Isaac to be married. Isn't that interesting? You see the prominence here? Another note of coincidence, and this is a pun, right? Another note of coincidence, because there's no coincidences. In Genesis 22, after God provided a ram as a substitute for the offer, if, if, instead of Isaac, we are told in Genesis 22 and 19, then Abraham, now listen to this, Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. What's the problem with that? Where's Isaac? He came down. He came down from Mount Moriah. Remember, it was only him and Abraham that went up there? He came down with, Isaac, with Abraham. And they both went with the servants back to Beersheba. But why isn't Isaac mentioned? Maybe it's because, actually Isaac isn't mentioned from that point until Genesis 24, 62. Why? Roll that around in your minds for a few minutes. Isaac 
he's waiting. He's now, he's got his bride and she's preparing. And he doesn't have to be talked about anymore. It's like Jesus going back to the place where he's waiting for his, to come back and marry his bride. That's why he didn't come down because Jesus was sacrificed. And now on Mount Moriah where the sacrifice actually was made, Jesus went away. Isaac didn't get sacrificed, but the point of Scripture, I believe, in not mentioning him coming down from that hill, because when Jesus was nailed to that cross, did he come down from that cross and walk down that hill? He did not. He went to the place prepared. That's why Isaac is probably not talked about, because as a foretype, he was sacrificed, and you don't hear from him again until when? Until he marries his bride. And they meet together and they're married. We will meet him in the true promised land just as the tribulation is going to kick off when we get raptured. And what's one of the first things that happens after we're raptured? The marriage supper of the Lamb. You get the parallels here? That's all I wanted to prove to you today. When we come back and we reconvene on the 26th, we're going to talk about the next most significant event here is, the, is, is Rebecca giving birth to Jacob and Esau. We're going to take quite a long sidebar on this because this is why we're going to figure out why the Palestinians and the Israelites are at war today, why the Palestinians want to take that land, why they want to take the Temple Mount. The Arabs just want to destroy them, okay? Iran, who's not even Arab, they want to just destroy them. That's another reason. There's another. But the Palestinians in particular want that land, and the world wants to give them that land. Why? Why do you think? You'll find out next time we get together. So come back on the 26th. The 26th. Study. I have a website, you know, so don't say, well, we've not got no class for the next couple of weeks. I don't have to do nothing. Study. <laughs>